everyone. Welcome to The Lifted Podcast. I'm your host, Talon Denham, and this is a place for us to talk about what we're doing every day to raise our vibration and understand ourselves more deeply as energetic beings and co-creators. All right, my friends, welcome to another episode. If you are new here, I'm so happy that you found the show. Episodes drop every Wednesday, and I'm Helen. I'm a mindset mentor for women. I teach meditation, make music, lots of things. And if you've been with me for a while, I just want to express my deepest gratitude for your presence. It's really such a gift to be able to show up in this way and share these amazing stories and conversations with you. So I hope that you guys are having a beautiful week as we make our way into the summer months. We're coming out of this full moon in Sagittarius, lots of interesting fiery uh, heated energy going on right now. So Sagittarius, when I think of Sagittarius, it's really about optimism and playfulness. And so where can we bring that into our lives more consciously and really prioritize joy and feeling good in everything that we do? And I've probably shared the sentiment before, but when we think about, you know, everything that we're doing in our careers, in our friendships, in our love lives, like we're really moving toward joy and feeling good in life, right? So how can we just remember that and make sure that every step that we're taking is for our highest good, for our overall well-being, and releasing any pressure and weight off of our shoulders to know that we don't have to be doing anything that doesn't make us feel really good. And that goes for allowing specific energies into your life, whether it's with people or places or things. So maybe this is a good time to just take inventory of, you know, who's in your life, what's going on in your life, what your habits generally look like, and just even write it down, like take inventory, what's going on. And if you are a journaler like me, if you love to write and just do some deep dives and explore your your own psyche, I've actually created a totally free workbook for you. It's called Five Tools You Need to Start Your Subconscious Healing Journey. So I think it would be good for any of us. It's just great journal prompts, workbook prompts to just get you to deepen your understanding of self, essentially. So beautiful. That's out there for you. Okay, guys, I really want to just shift right into this amazing conversation today. We have both Dr. Malcolm Lesavoy and Cliff Meidel here with us today, two guys that I consider friends at this point, and I'm so grateful to have worked alongside them in the past few months and really get to know them. And I know that you're going to leave feeling just inspired and uplifted in so many ways from their story. So I'll read you a blurb so that you can kind of feel prepared as you go into what we're talking about here. So this is the story. Nearly 2 billion viewers from around the world watched American kayaker Cliff Meidel lead his teammates onto the field at the opening ceremonies of the 2000 Sydney Olympic Games. Many had learned the inspiring story of this courageous young man from California. It was the culmination of a dream that involved faith, science, and friendship and made possible by a tremendous support system. It all started 14 years earlier in 1986 while working on a construction site. Cliff jackhammered into three buried power lines and received a massive electrical shock, sending 30,000 volts of electricity throughout his body. The severe shock stopped his heart, but he was revived by firefighters and first responders, the first of many to save his life. The accident had disintegrated most of Cliff's functional knee bones, muscles in both legs, severely burned his back, head, feet, and his local doctors had scheduled him for a bilateral above-knee amputation on both legs. 
The night before his scheduled amputations, Cliff's mother had learned of a plastic and reconstructive surgeon named Dr. Malcolm Lesavoy, who had been performing radical innovative surgical procedures and immediately reached out to him. So Dr. Lesavoy visited Cliff and agreed to transfer him to UCLA, where he performed limb preservation surgery and changed Cliff's life forever, leading him to... Uh, pursue his Olympic career. So it's an absolutely amazing story of these two guys. I'm so grateful that we all got to sit in person together and have this conversation, you know, over coffee and just hang out. And, and it's always interesting to me to interview people like I know pretty well, because there are so many layers of us, right? And it's just a beautiful way to even deepen an understanding of a person uh, who you might think, you know, uh, in these interviews. So I just, I just love doing this so much. And as always, as you're listening, if you feel like a buddy might benefit from what you're hearing, please do send it along. You can find us on Instagram. I'm at Helen Denham underscore, and you can find these guys in their joint speaking venture at two sparks of inspiration on Instagram and at Cliff Meidel and Lesavoy plastic surgery are their unique handles as well. So thank you so much for being here. Can't wait to hear from you about what you learned from this one. I love you. And I'll talk to you on the flip side. Okay. okay, guys, the first question I love to ask guests is how do you like to start your day off? Do you have any rising routines or rituals that you go to in the morning? Yeah, that, that, that is an interesting thought to, uh, to ponder. Uh, every day usually is the same for all of us, I would imagine. It depends on what, our, uh, what we're going to be doing during that day. So uh, I have to be really wide awake to do surgery first thing in the morning. Uh, but what I really enjoy doing... Um, First thing in the morning is uh, taking care of the horses, uh, going out, feeding the horses early in the morning, usually 6, 6.30, sometimes earlier, uh, sometimes later if I oversleep, and shoveling horse shit. Because shoveling horse shit is, for me, um, uh, a very relaxing situation. It's mind, uh, it's mindless, and there's, uh, you don't have to think about anything. And uh, it's somewhat a little bit exercise, um, but it also, there's a beginning and an end to it. And I'm with my buddies, my horses up there who <laughs> are enjoying me feeding them, first of all, and me getting rid of their stuff. And then we just do it all over again in the evening. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I really like to do in the morning. And we're recording at your beautiful ranch in Topanga here. It's beautiful. What, quickly, what drew you to horses and what makes you love horses so much? When did you become a horse owner and just lover of this work? And well, that, that is uh, a good question also. Um, my father, who uh, was an immigrant and came from Russia, who then uh, escaped Russia, actually, and then uh, uh, went to Argentina, became a gaucho. And when he finally was able to come to America, because there, were, there was quota against Jews coming into America in the 30s, uh, he was, was able to come, and he had a love for horses. And so... Uh, we started riding, he and I, because he had two horses, at, not at our house, but at a, at a barn, uh, when I was seven years old. And so uh, ever since that period of time, uh, I've been you know, into horses. And uh, it's been really a, a lifeline for me. Um, there was a period of time when I didn't have horses when I was in, at the university and in medical school and during my residency. But after that, uh, then I got horses and... And uh, here we are. But you mentioned ranch. Uh, if I can just uh, um, diverge a little bit. Um, uh, yeah, a lot of people call my place, our place, uh, 
So being in my place, uh, a ranch. But uh, I, I use this uh, explanation about ranches. Um, uh, I was on this uh, board of directors for the Plastic Surgery Society and uh, sitting next to a good friend of mine who's from Texas. And, uh, and he had horses. And during a board of directors meeting, it's kind of boring. And uh, so we're talking, we're talking about horses actually. And, and he was born in Texas, born and raised in Texas. And so I said, uh, would you, were you raised on a ranch? He said, no, no, not on a ranch. I said, well, did you have horses? How many horses did your family have? He said, well, we had about 600 horses. <laughs> 600 horses? Yeah. Uh, it's not a ranch? He said, no. And did you have cows? He said, yeah, we had cows. We had about three, 4,000 cows. Yeah. My goodness. And uh, so how many acres did you have? He said, we had about 800 acres. He said, that's not a ranch? He said, in Texas... It's a thousand acres or more, then you can call it a ranch. Otherwise, anything less than a thousand acres, it's just a place. Okay. <laughs> so I call this a place. Yeah. It's our home. Hmm. It's a place. It's really not a ranch, although we have horses and dogs and yeah. so on and so forth. But thank you for the. Oh, for I asking. love that. Yeah, it's a beautiful place and it's like a sanctuary here, yeah. truly, in these mountains. So thank you. Okay, Cliff, how do you like to start your days off? What is what does your morning routine look like? Do you have one? I think the yeah, I think I'm very happy to wake up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the older we get, you know, we praise that. But I think that uh, typically what I usually do is uh, I kind of I don't want to say ponder, but uh, I always like to take the thirty thousand foot approach of what my day is going to be like. So uh, you know, I kind of mentally kind of plan it out. Okay, I'm going to be doing this. I'm going to be doing that. Uh, you know, if it's on the weekend, uh, I really, really, really enjoy getting up and going for a paddle. Uh, I like doing mm -hmm. that, especially getting together with all the guys and, and being able to uh, paddle with my friends. And so it becomes a little bit of a social thing as one gets older. Uh, but at the same time, you're, you know, it's an avenue and it's an outlet and it's mm -hmm. a, a real big enjoyment for me. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, day to day, it's always kind of doing that, uh, you know, anticipating what I'm going to be doing for the day, kind of mentally quickly plan out within about five minutes uh, in terms of what I anticipate doing for my day and things of that nature. Beautiful. Yeah. So that 30,000 foot approach, like you were saying, it's, it's like an intention setting practice to kind of prime how you want to feel throughout the day, what you want to accomplish. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I'm, I'm really big into creative visualization and it moves me, uh, you know, emotionally. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also moves me structurally as well, too, because, uh, you know, I can kind of step back and say, okay, I know I've got these things to do. How am I going to execute them? And I do like a real quick plan. Uh, as to how my day is going to go. So that way, when I get to the point in time, there's no surprises. At least I've said that, okay, this is what I think it's going to be like, and hopefully I can execute it the way that I, I planned it out. But that's mm -hmm. essentially how it is. It's always been about, you know, visualizing things. I'm a big dreamer, I guess. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, and I'm good. sure that'll play into the part of the story that we'll get into in a minute here. But I would love to hear, you know, there's a lot of backstory that I will have given a little bit of an introduction to introduce you guys and what we're going to be talking about. But I'd love to hear about the moments leading up to before you met Dr. Lassavoy here and what was going on in your life. Um, take us through the event that led you to your meeting. Yeah, well, what happened was is that I was involved in a, in a horrific construction accident where I received a severe electrical shock. And so... Uh, it was kind of a touch-and-go situation. Uh, it was very severe, so I was burned over 15% of my body. Uh, it also had a cardiac arrest in process and all that. But So it was a huge management ordeal. Uh, for me, I always like to say I really didn't know what was going on. I was unconscious. Uh, but it was in the hands of my mother you know, at the time and my dad. Uh, and they kind of had to drive the, bus, drive the bus per se. You know, At that time, they had to make some major decisions. 
So, you know, here we were, uh, I was at a burn center for uh, about four weeks in time. Uh, and then my family came up with a huge dilemma uh, that they were faced with potentially me losing both of my legs. And uh, my mother was uh, very forthright. You know, she went out and, and that's when the relationship started with Dr. Lesavoy. Uh, when we were at one hospital facility and uh, they had a game plan uh, in play in terms of what they were going to do. And uh, they told my mother that I may have a bilateral amputation on both of my legs. Uh, and then I always like to say always with my mother, when you say the word no, it's like looking into a mirror for her, right? It's on. <laughs> uh, and my mom, and I'm very thankful for that looking back, that there's many points in time, uh, not only when I was in the hospital, uh, where our family had absolutely zero clue in terms of medicine. We just didn't know. Uh, but what my mother did do very well was persistent, and both parents were very hardworking. Uh, and my mother just, you know, went beyond. If you told her, no, you can't do it, she would find a way how to do it. And, and that's when uh, we heard of Dr. Lesavoy. Uh, when I was in dire straits at that time, and my mom went up, and that's when she first met uh, Dr. Lesavoy. Wow. So, so this accident was a construction site, right? And this, this accident happened. And did it immediately kind of knock you out? Did you know what had happened when you woke up in the hospital? Or what did you remember from what happened? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a kind of a foggy uh, type of memory on it. But I remember receiving this initial jolt because I remember working there. Uh, and I was working with a co-worker at the time. He was, he was much older than I, than I was at the time. And uh, so the two of us were working there on a specific project, and then I remember waking up, and this was late, probably about 16 hours later, and I remember having this enormous pain in my chest. And here my mom and dad were standing next to me wearing these white coats, so it's almost like a dream, right, I'm waking up into, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And so my mother had told me, you know, you were in a very bad accident and everything, and I was intubated at the time, so I was very raspy with my voice and the first thing that I wanted to do at the time was call my coworker, uh, which I did at the time. And he actually thought it was a joke mm. uh, when I called him that someone who was playing a prank and uh, uh, because he, first of all, didn't recognize my voice and he didn't know what the outcome was because at that time it, it wasn't very good, you know, especially when the fire department was there, you know, it, the outlook wasn't very good. Mm -hmm. So he was surprised to hear from me, but that was the first thing uh, that I did at that time to let him know that essentially I lived, yeah. Wow. If so, I could, yeah. If, if I can interrupt. So, but prior to this, you were 18, 19 years old? Yeah, I was 19 years of age. 19 years old. But you were an athlete, you were a runner. Yeah, and, I was, uh, you know, an average athlete, yeah. Uh, yeah, average athlete. And, uh, and for the summer, uh, took some time off to work in construction. Right? Yeah. And using a jackhammer, mm -hmm. um, uh, digging holes, so on and so forth, which is something that, Many of us do. I, I did similar things, not using a jackhammer, but, but uh, I was doing it in farming of, in Pennsylvania. But it was interesting how, how we came in contact because of this situation. And, and I'm just interrupting to give a little context of where, where he started yeah. and, then, uh, and then was working in construction. Totally. Yeah. So Malcolm, when you get the call from his mom, What's going through your mind and how, how urgent was it for Cliff to come see you? Like what were the circumstances you guys were being met with here? Right. Well, uh, Cliff uh, was injured um, um, uh, and, and then was resuscitated by uh, people that were close to where he was uh, physically um, and uh, then taken to the hospital. And the, the amount of, of electrical energy that, 
that he absorbed is uh, horrendous, and it's two or three times the amount that is used to uh, in the for the electric chair to to you know when people are given the death penalty. Oh my gosh! So he was very fortunate. And the point is, is that uh, the reason he didn't die is because there are exits uh, from this energy. Uh, it enters your body, and then it has to exit someplace. On the electric chair, there's no exit, and that's why that's why sadly uh, patients are. Um, are killed, and so uh, so he had multiple exits uh, in the back of his skull and scalp, uh, his uh, his back, because uh, where where you contact the earth is where the grounding is, so to speak, and uh, most likely he had fallen to his knees or his knees had touched some area, and and that's where some some of the major uh, exit wounds were. Mm. It blew off a couple of his toes. Uh, so on and so forth. And so he's in the hospital, uh, and they're uh, in this other hospital in the South Bay area where he lives, and uh, they were doing a very good job, and they resuscitated him even more so from, from being dead at mm -hmm. the site, uh, then taken to the hospital, and then they, they did a number of operations um, um, to uh, uh, remove some necrotic tissue and so on and so forth the pro uh, uh, around the back of his scalp, his uh, back uh, and his legs also, they were debriding some of this tissue. Problem is though, with electrical injuries is that um, the, uh, it's not like a fire um, where there are flames, uh, or it's not like a chemical burn uh, where you can see the actual injury on the skin. Uh, these kinds of injuries uh, are internal and they go along the, the lines of least resistance. So as I mentioned uh, frequently when we're discussing this, there are four kinds of burns. There's the, a flame burn, a fire. There's a, a chemical fire, uh, a chemical uh, burn uh, when you are come in contact with some caustic chemicals. There's the electrical burn, and then you can be burned by your girlfriend or your boyfriend <laughs> also, which is probably the most devastating of all, <laughs> as a matter of fact. And I'm not sure about the treatments for that. Yeah. Uh, so, um, oh okay. God, I'm so sorry. That's okay. I turned it off. I turned it on airplane. So, Cliff, um, so Cliff's mom calls you, and yeah. and just to back up for a moment to to touch on your expertise, you had done the first leg transplant ever, or in the United States, pretty much. Like, is that accurate? Uh, yes, yeah. uh, it is accurate. It, it actually wasn't a transplant; it was a replant, which okay. is different. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, the Chinese did a leg transplant, uh, I think a year before uh, my particular case. And that means that you take a leg from the right leg and put it on the left leg. Really? Yeah, and this was, I mean, not a joke, this was a, uh, an unfortunate Chinese gentleman who was in a horrific accident, had both, um, uh, had one leg totally destroyed, and it's kind of a long story, but mm -hmm. the Chinese are uh, very, uh, they're the, some of the pioneers in microsurgery, and they took uh, this one patient's um, right leg, which was still uh, good, and put it on the left leg, which was not so good, and then were, were able to use a prosthesis on the one where they took the other leg from. Mm -hmm. And so, um, anyhow, uh, I was uh, uh, approached uh, in a, at UC, well, I was at UCLA, 
uh, for a young man, 17 years old, who was in a motor scooter, motorcycle accident, where his uh, left leg was uh, amputated. And so he was brought to the UCLA emergency room, and, and I was presented with this uh, problem. The leg came in another ambulance, in a separate ambulance. And, uh, you know, what are we going to do? Um, there hadn't ever been a, a leg that had been cut off before and uh, put back on. And mm -hmm. so um, I was fortunate to be able to do that. We hooked up the bones and the tendons and the nerves and the arteries uh, and the veins. And um, eight months later, nine months later, he was able to walk down the aisle and graduate in high school, wow. which was really kind of cool. We had to shorten the leg a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but it worked out uh, pretty good. It, and it turned out, I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but it turned out to be the first, the first one done in the world. Wow. As a matter of fact, we published this in 1977. And uh, at that time, I thought it was the second one done in the world because I thought the Chinese had done mm. this first replant, but they had actually done a transplant, mm -hmm. which is technically not exactly the same, but it's semantics. Totally. So Cliff, is this, so your mom kind of had done her research and realized that like, tell us what your mom was thinking. Cause you're about to go into a bilateral amputation, right? And yes. like your mom is like, okay, no, we're going to figure out a different way. Yeah. So she was in complete disarray because like anybody would be, you know, uh, my father actually, uh, you know, heard of this uh, one time coming up uh, in an elevator from, uh, with my younger brother. Uh, in the hospital and the doctors walked in and he heard them discuss this that the kid up in ICU may have bilateral AKs uh, so that kind of was presented to the family and of course you know you go through all these different uh, trauma traumatic situations you know from being in a horrific accident uh, all these debridement surgeries not knowing what's going on what's the outcome going to be and then when uh, the uh, when they presented the fact that they may have to do an amputation on mm -hmm. both legs that's when things got really hairy for the family. So uh, Dr. Lessavoy's name came up uh, in discussions there, and that's when my mother had essentially followed through on it. And he didn't she go up to UCLA, uh, or did she had called you on the telephone, right? Yeah, she had called me. It was, it was the afternoon. It was a afternoon, and um, I was in my clinic at UCLA and uh, seeing patients, and she said that her son was uh, in the hospital in the South Bay, and that uh, was severely injured, and uh, there were plans by the doctors to, uh, to do bilateral AK, which is above knee amputations. And uh, would, would I be able to come down and check out and do something? And I said, well, no, I don't work at that hospital, and, and uh, maybe they could transfer him, him up. And, and no, he's scheduled for tomorrow morning. And... Um, and I kind of had to go, but she called me back, and and uh, she started crying, <laughs> crying. And so um, I said, "Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll come down and and act as a family friend, and you know, I can see what what we could do." And so I did come down, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, because she was very persistent, and uh, and uh, I saw what the situation was, I thought maybe we could help. Wow, and yeah. this is amazing. It's like the day before your surgery schedule. Which yeah, is so yeah, crazy. It, it was, and then the the impact of of all of that. That was my first time ever meeting Dr. Lesavoy, uh, but it was a very uh, impactful time for me because you know, as we all uh, face adversities in our life, you know, there's different all several types of adversities, but this was a traumatic one, and uh, I was at that point where my back was up against the wall. I had absolutely zero hope 
at that at that time, and I thought this was going to be over with, you know. Uh, and then I remember very clearly uh, when Dr. Lesovoy walked into the room, you know, it was a very distinct uh, appearance. And I remember he walked into the room and acknowledged my mom uh, that was there and uh, came straight to the bed. Uh, and I remember he putting his hand on my shoulder and he said, hey, Cliff, I'm Mal Lesovoy and I'm here to take a look at your legs. So you can imagine a patient was thinking that, you know, white coat and all of this coming in, but uh, he was he came in with his signature cowboy boots oh. and he had jeans on and everything. And for me at that time, you know, it's, it's amazing what the, the power of the human spirit, and the, power of the, the power of the human mind is your back is up against the wall. You have absolutely no hope. You're going to potentially lose your legs. And then somebody enters your life and just ignites this small little flame of hope in your heart that just maybe he's going to be able to save the legs. And then when he walked in and made that connection for me, uh, it was a grab that I grabbed at that time. And, and I had to grab. Uh, and for me, that was that little flame of hope in my heart that uh, he was going to be able to do some good for me and p possibly save the legs. Oh uh, but it was very you know, delirious and, and very, very confusing at that time. Uh, all of these things were out on the table. My understanding of it all uh, wasn't very good uh, because I was in and out of surgeries, debridement surgeries uh, at that time. But uh, when I first met Dr. Lesavoy, it was, uh, you know, you, essentially, uh, it sounds kind of corny, but meeting a savior, you know, uh, he walks in and that changed my life forever. Uh, I wouldn't be here today uh, being able to sit with you and, and talk about this and be able to be here with Mal. Uh, if it wasn't for that very moment and uh, you know, and there's a lot of things that go into play, you know uh, I'm very thankful uh, being able to have this opportunity uh, of meeting one of the best doctors in the world uh, And then I'm also incredibly grateful for the persistence of my mother because uh, if she didn't do the second call back uh, Who knows what the outcome would have been, you know, mm. we don't know these things but uh, when they're presented to us and you're going through extreme adversity uh, that's why I always like to say, never ever under any circumstance give up uh, because there's always hope and there's always going to be a good outcome. All right, guys, popping in for a moment to let you know that I'm now offering completely free 30-minute power sessions with me. So this is for those of you who have been curious about working with me in my one-on-one -on -one mentorship series, but would just like some more clarity about what we'd be doing. We can get to know each other, clear up any questions for you, and it's really a potent activation in these 30 minutes. I take a three-fold approach to working with you. First, we are addressing your pain point. We're really taking a look at what you're moving through emotionally. Number two, we're alchemizing it. So we are moving through that stickiness and that shadow with love and curiosity. And number three, we are moving toward alleviating that pain using some beautiful techniques. So if this is pinging your curiosity and calling you forward, I've left a link in the description below for you. And you can always visit HelenDenham.com to learn more about uh, my offerings. All right. So thanks so much for tuning in back to the episode. Uh, you just got to believe in yourself and trust yourself and, you know, become inspired, you know, and, and that's what had happened at the time. Wow. Yeah. So needless to say, you make it through the surgery and, you know, you walked through the front door this morning. I mean, you, your legs made it, you made it through this. And so to, to kind of skip to your recovery process a little bit, how did you mentally and emotionally and spiritually get through that first, you know, round of recovery? I'm, I'm sure it was just... 
so difficult. Yeah, it was a, a huge challenge at that time because here you are, uh, you know, first of all, you've got to realize that you're no longer the same person that you were before, right? Uh, things that we take for granted on a daily basis was stripped uh, completely away. I was now uh, in a position where, you know, we were fighting to save the legs and thankfully Dr. Lesaway was able to perform the surgery, but we weren't out of the woods at that time because you've always got a risk of infection. Uh, so, but then we got to this certain point and when you're going through adverse situations or traumatic situations, you know, we go through stages of grievance and, you know, I was depressed and, and Dr. Lesavoy noticed that. Uh, but then, you know, here we go again. Uh, I always like to say this is the second flame of hope uh, where, you know, he was one of the best doctors in the world, but then he almost came to be as a second father. Uh, he encouraged me, advised me, inspired me. Uh, to be able to go out there and be the best that I could be, right? Mm -hmm. And so he essentially said, you know, Cliff, I've done my 50% uh, where I've done the surgery. Now you're going to have to come up with the balance. And we all know that I'm not good at math, right? <laughs> 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 but the fact of the matter is, is that as a young man, how do we, I mean, we don't take any adversity 101 classes. How are we trained in this? We're not, you know, we, it happens like this all the time. We got to react. Uh, I didn't understand what it was and, and what Dr. Lessonvoy said, it's all about the determination, the belief, the willpower, developing resilience. You know, you've got to get through this adversity. So he kind of made a challenge for me, right? It was like, yeah. uh, here you go. You've got a month to get out of bed and go into a wheelchair. And that's when the music stopped. I was like, what? You know, going from bed to a wheelchair, you know, how am I going to possibly do that? I got these jello-like muscles on my leg, uh, legs, and it was very painful at the time. And I just couldn't fathom it. Uh, but... The moral of the story is, is as you go through rehabilitation or you go through the phases of adversity, uh, it's amazing that, uh, you know, oftentimes we take one step uh, and we may not be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but you got to believe that you're going to be able to get to the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. It's all about, you know, in your heart. It sounds corny, uh, but that's where it is. It's the visualization that you're going to get out of this. How you're going to do it doesn't matter at all one bit. It's all about taking every one small micro step, just like with microsurgery, right? It's all yeah. about the small stuff. And then ultimately, you know, I have a photograph that I show during my presentations where I'm standing at these uh, parallel bars and I have, you know, more doubt in my mind than you can possibly shake a stick, at, you know, and shame and everything else that goes along with that. But, you know, I made it, you know, down the 20 uh, feet and, and back and it wasn't in one day, it was in four weeks. Uh, but you learn a lot. You grow a lot from each step. You develop confidence, and, and, and that helps you springboard to potentially accomplishing other tasks. But, you know, that was the initial part of the rehabilitation was getting through that. Uh, and then uh, there was, you know, it was a continuous lifelong commitment even today. Mm -hmm. I still have to rehab and everything like that. It's, I'm not out of the woods. Yeah. And Malcolm, when you were working with Cliff, like what did you see within him and what did you know that you needed to instill within him to get him through this healing phase and this first progress? Yeah, well, uh, that is a good question. Uh, just going back just a little bit, um, to have uh, Cliff transferred from that uh, other hospital, his doctors uh, were very uh, reticent to let him go. And... Um, and I was kind of resident to accept him because uh, I weren't sure what we could do. Um, but being a, a plastic and reconstructive surgeon, and we do a lot of these things kind of um, uh, just out of our head, uh, thinking of different things, um, uh, I was able to convince the doctors to let him come to UCLA and so we could uh, work on him. 
And, uh, and reluctantly they did. And I just said, you know, look, if we fail, then we can send him back and you can take his legs off. And uh, that would be it. So we were successful. However, uh, the success of the surgery is one tiny little piece of this man's recovery. Mm -hmm. And when, when he says uh, uh, that I told him, uh, you know, look, I did 50%, I did my part, you know, my 50%, it's up to you to do your 50%. 50% isn't even close to what he's done. Uh, the surgery is, you know, is one thing uh, because it, it gets the ball rolling. But to be able to have the strength, emotional strength, to go through the rehabilitation uh, that a 19-year-old uh, would have mm -hmm. is unfathomable to me mm -hmm. as an adult at the time. I mean, I get younger actually as time goes on, but, but the point is, is that what he did is, is, is basically a miracle, not the surgery. The surgery was, you know, it is what it was, and fortunately it was successful. But uh, his rehabilitation and his gumption to continue and to take one step at a time, and it is truly, physically, and figuratively, one step at a time. Mm -hmm. Without taking that one step, um, you know, you just lay down and, and die. Yeah. You really do. And so uh, his strength was in his heart and in his mind and from his genes, from his parents. Um, and the parts that we as medical professionals played in his role was infinitesimal to the amount of, of uh, stuff that he has inside of him. Well, you're always so humble about the work well, that you do because truth. this is this was a rare, very rare procedure that you did, anyways. But it's just absolutely amazing to watch the growth that happened, and then to go forward. So to get into your next chapter of life, you you end up going to the Olympics, like against all odds, <laughs> like the actual. So how did this happen? Were you an athlete? It sounds like we were talking a little bit. You had been into athletics prior to this accident, and so take us along the journey of actually getting to the Olympics. You know, so I think that, uh, you know, for me, I always like to say I was like the average kid, which I was, you know, born and raised in the beach community and uh, played a lot of soccer, uh, club sports. And, uh, you know, I think, but if I look back and look at, you know, kind of what my foundation was is that, uh, you know, my parents were always hard workers, so I was never really good at a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, but I was always, I always would do the homework and do the work, you know, to kind of get through that. And so I kind of you know, skated around a little bit with martial arts and all that. But I think that one of the biggest things for me was, is I just dreamt big. You know, I was this kid that always dreamt about being somebody that I probably couldn't be. I remember running down the ramp at PE, dreaming about competing in this large arena, right? And here I am walking in and all these people are screaming and yelling and I'm out there, you know, was I kicking a soccer ball? I have no idea, but I got these euphoric eyes running down to PE. So I think that, you know, a lot of my life and people go through adversity and they deal with it differently. Uh, mine was a lot about, you know, foreshadowing. You know, I love the visualization. I like getting into the moment. You know, even today I'll get on a life cycle and start pedaling, get the euphorism going. And I think about, okay, what am I going to do in my speech and things like that. And, and that's what gets me to go. I'm not going to be able to do it on paper. I'm not a on paper kind of guy. I'm just a visualization kind of guy. Mm. And, and that's how it goes. And so that kind of was the seed work for all that. Yeah. So you knew, you knew something big 
was you wanted something big to happen for you. You you were seeing it in your mind as you visualized from a young age. You just didn't know what it was going to be. Well, I dreamt a lot about yeah. it. You know, I, I was a big dreamer. I always looked at you know I had a a lot of intangible role models in my life. You know, whether it was a local Olympian that lived around the corner that I used to deliver newspapers to, mm -hmm. that was a huge inspirer for me growing up, or it was reading books of Muhammad Ali, Billie Jean King, or whatever it may be. That's how I was. Or the black belt uh, that was at the karate studio that inspired me a lot, you know? So that's the kind of kid that I was. Was I going to accomplish anything out of that? Probably not, you know? But it was just about dreaming, you know? Yeah. You know, everybody dreams about uh, being on top of a podium, I would assume, you know, with their hands in the air and fist pumping and saying, yeah, you know, but it doesn't become a re reality. Uh, a lot of times, you know, possibly, yeah. Uh, but I never thought anything like that would be a reality, especially uh, if going through the situation that I had gone through. Yeah. And what had led you to sprint kayaking? Like, why was that, you know, sparking your interest? Uh, well, it was, uh, it, well, what happened was, is how I got into kayaking was my younger brother. He was four years younger than I am. Uh, his, his name's Norm, Norman Cliff, like cheers. And uh, so Norm, I was going through rehab. Doctors were telling me at that time, uh, the orthopedists were saying, okay, rehab three times a week. I did it three times a day. Uh, and that's just me, you know, I overdid. Uh, yes, I suffered circumstances from that, you know, where I had problems, uh, you know, and I had to come visit Dr. Lessonboy uh, to fix it, you know, little fixings here and there. But the thing about it is, is I would push the envelope and that was beneficial a lot for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember uh, people were saying, just let the kid go, keep the train going, you know, it's better not to disrupt him. And so I would just keep going and going and going and going. And then so my brother, uh, came up with this idea. He goes, he wanted me to join this canoe club uh, down in Redondo Beach. And I was, I did not want to do it uh, because I was very ashamed of who I was, what I looked like. I had all these scars and everything. And now I was going to be thrown into this culture of all these people and I was going to be the worst at it. Uh, but what my brother essentially had told me at that time is he said, you know, look in the mirror and tell me what you see. And the only thing that I could see was a kid with crutches and lower leg limitations. Uh, I couldn't see the rest of me, you know. And But what he got me to believe in is the tools that I had, not that I, what I did not have. And I had upper body strength because I lifted weights and I was uh, destined to rehab because my only ignition source at that time was to be a normal kid. That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to go to the beach and wear flip-flops and shorts like everybody else did. And so that gave me the fuel to be able to fight for that. And that's what helped me through adversity. So then, you know, here I go. I get pushed into this canoe club uh, by my brother. Uh, you know, he encouraged me to do it. Uh, and uh, so I get involved. I'm a guppy and all of that. Uh, and, and then I, you know, over the years, you know, we're talking about a 10-year period uh, after my accident and my first Olympic Games. Uh, and so I met a lot of friends and I became very fit and I traveled around. Uh, but I think if I was to step back and take that 30,000-foot approach view of so what really did this canoe club provide me? Uh, well, it provided me an outlet to channel my negative energy that I had taking lemons and turning them into lemonade. And it was all about the acceptance. Nobody judged me for what I looked like or what I could or couldn't do. They just basically said, if you want to be in the top crew, here's what you need to do. So I learned over time and time and time and time. And, and I had to take all those little micro steps. And I remember one of my coaches, a great friend of mine today, and he... Uh, had said, he pulled me to the side, he noticed I was getting real frustrated, and he said, Cliff, listen, I can teach anybody technique. Anybody, I could teach you technique. But what I cannot teach is the intensity. And he says, I could see it in your eyes that you want it. So that goes back to, you know, 
I'm a moderate kind of guy, uh, but it's all about completing everything 100%. And I always learned, especially going through rehabilitation, it's all about the small steps. So I applied the small steps and then uh, here I was uh, walking into the opening ceremony uh, in the 1996 Olympics. Uh, the noise was so loud and then all of a sudden it became extremely quiet in my ears. Uh, and then it was like my blood was slowing down. And I realized at that point in time, hey, wait a second. This is the dream that I've always had when I was a young little kid, but I never knew what it was and I never even thought or believed it would come to fruition, it would be real. Uh, but it kind of goes back and parlays back that never under any circumstance let anybody ever tell you no. Go for it and do it. Uh, was I ever thinking I was gonna be an Olympian? Absolutely not. Uh, but it was all about the small steps and if we work hard and take those small steps, opportunities uh, will present themselves because of your hard work and dedication. And that's what ended up happening. It was a marriage uh, of a, a perfect sport uh, where, yes, I had to work on my legs because kayaking involves uh, a lot of leg strength to some degree, not like rowing, mm -hmm. uh, but it's like baseball and golf where it's the entire body composition uh, coming together for that leverage part. Uh, but, you know, I was able to overcome and adapt and, and, and learn how to, you know, maximize things that I didn't quite have and try to take a, a limitation and, and turn it into a strength. Wow. You, you know, something that's so beautiful that I'm picking up from this journey with you is the power of community and the people that you had in your corner. Like just from day one, from your mom not taking no for an answer, teaching you persistence and a near-death experience to Dr. Lesavoy showing up for you and, and, you know, being like you said, almost like a second father figure there for you too. It's just really beautiful to see how that all comes together. But yeah, the persistence, the, the focus that you have had to get this done is just unbelievable. And Dr. Lesavoy, when you're seeing Cliff for checkups and, you know, progress, what were you making of everything that was going on? Yeah, well, it was interesting because after he really was discharged to a certain extent, he had some minor little things that we uh, tweaked, um, I lost contact with him. And so 10 years forward, um, I think it was on a Sunday, um, I get uh, a couple of phone calls from friends of mine uh, kind of all over the country. They're saying, hey, it's the, it's the time of the Atlanta Olympics and uh, you have to turn the TV on. I think it was CBS or NBC, I'm not sure, or ABC, I think it was, um, because there's this guy being interviewed who's an Olympian and said that uh, you saved his life and you're his inspiration and, and now he's an Olympian and so on and so forth. And, <laughs> That's him. So after the Olympics, we we you know uh, touched base and and became very good friends and and uh, and then subsequently four years later, obviously the Sydney Olympics come and uh, at the opening we've all watched the opening uh, ceremonies of the Olympics, which is so uh, gratifying and it's so I mean even uh, little countries that have two people you know marching and one person holding the flag. Well, the U.S. team has had, I think, in, at Sydney, I think, over 600 people, and they vote for one person to carry the flag at the opening ceremonies. Bingo! <laughs> <laughs> this guy. So uh, it really was, uh, I mean, I, I get goosebumps telling you about it just now, and it's been so many years ago, and, and we've regaled this story. It's not a story. It's, it's, it's history, really, um, many times, and, and uh, we get together... Uh, uh, because of the insistence of uh, Sabina, my <laughs> wife, uh, to uh, get talks together and we, we give these inspirational speeches yeah. uh, to various organizations uh, from time to time and we really enjoy doing it. 
um, and we get inspiration from it. Uh, every time I hear him talk, I get inspired, and and uh, I don't know if vice versa, but but uh, I mean I was at his wedding, and and I mean it's really uh, it's really a fantastic uh, experience that we have been through, and it's it's life changing to a certain extent. It it really is, but it is he who is truly the hero, um, not only being the, the Olympian, because that's the small part of it. Uh, it, it really is his persistence and his imagination of going through uh, the most difficult situations that anybody could possibly imagine. I mean, I, 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 I can't imagine it. And I doubt that 90, 90% of, of humans on this earth would just give up and, and, mm -hmm. not, and just be in a wheelchair and that'd be it. Now, not, being in a wheelchair is not a bad thing. And uh, I mean, we see uh, Special Olympics and and uh, these, oh, these heroes, true heroes, uh, playing basketball or uh, have, have one leg, have no arms, and, and are doing unbelievable things. Those are heroes. Um, and so they had to persist exactly emotionally and intellectually like Cliff has. Mm. And so he has a story. I'm sure every one of them have their stories, mm -hmm. which, are, which are as inspiring. Truly. You told the most beautiful story or gave an example of like eagles when they're going through their lifespan. Would you tell it to us again? Because I just sure. love this example so much and I think yeah. it really relates to this whole process. Uh, the whole eagle story is um, a wonderful one and it's an inspiring one to me anyhow. And it may be apocryphal, so you have to take it for what it's worth. <laughs> but uh, when eagles uh, soar and they are the most magnificent or one of the most magnificent uh, animals on earth, uh, birds. And uh, when they become 40 years old, they, have to, they come to a, a, a milestone in their life. And they have to decide then, are they going to continue to survive? But what happens is when they become 40, their beak becomes very weak. They, therefore, their talons become very soft. They can't catch fish. Their wings become stuck and not powerful. And so they have to come to a decision, are they going to survive and continue in life? And to do that, they have to go through a lot of pain. And the pain is this. They have to go up somewhere by themselves on a rock and start to break their beak so that it falls off. And then a new beak, stronger beak, now forms. And once that is accomplished, and it's a very painful process, you can imagine, they then, with their strong beak now, pluck out their talons, and, which is very painful, and then allow these new talons to grow out. And once that has accomplished, they then, with their talons, can take their wings and refurbish their wings, either pluck them out, the old feathers, and allow new ones to form. And if they are strong enough to perceive and persist with this painful process that may take months and weeks and maybe starve during that time because they can't hunt, they then can start to soar and they can start to catch fish and with their strong beak and with their talons and their, their wings survive. And they can survive another 10, 20, 30 years, mm -hmm. which is amazing. Yeah. Uh, all of us 
have to think of this because we may come to a, a time in our life when we have to say, what are we going to do now? I mean, are we going to change? Are we going to go through a painful process of changing? Um, are we going to have to get a new beak? Are we going to have to get new talons? I mean, how are we going to fly? Uh, how are we going to catch fish? Mm. Do we change our life for the better or do we just lay down and die? So uh, to change our life, it takes gumption. It takes intellectual um, strength and it takes pain because you're going from something old and something that is very safe to something that is maybe not so safe mm -hmm. and maybe you won't survive and maybe you won't succeed. But if you have the power inside you that Cliff Meidel has, had and has and continues to have, he's in pain every day from his knees, every single day. He doesn't have normal knees and uh, he's most likely going to have to have more surgery in, in the future. And so we have to decide how strong we are. Mm -hmm. And it's maybe something that makes us stronger mm -hmm. if it doesn't kill us. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. It made me so emotional to hear you say that the first time. And Cliff, how do you perceive pain? <clears throat> like, how do you, when you're experiencing like this physical pain and mental pain, like how are you observing that and getting through that in the moment? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I, I go back to uh, the whole management process. You know, that's, I think, what my life has been like. Uh, has been, you know, as we go through adversity, I think one of the, the strongest skill sets that one can have is the ability to manage failure because uh, that's what makes some of the people that are the most successful in the world. It's all about them being able to break through their failures, which gains that knowledge base for them to take the next step. Mm -hmm. And we see that across the board. But, uh, you know, I had many times... Uh, in my life, especially during those moments when I was in a hospital that I wanted to give up uh, and, and things of that nature, and you want to throw the towel in, and that's a natural process. But, you know, as you go through these various different stages uh, of grievance and so on and so forth, you get to that point where it becomes an inflection point where you have to make a big decision. Uh, you know, are you going to get through this uh, or are you not going to get through this? And most of us will make that choice to want to get through this. And that's where that big process comes in where you got to feel it in your heart. Then you got to believe in yourself that you're going to get through it and you want to get through it. Mm -hmm. uh, now, as we face adversities, you know, that was one big adversity uh, in my life, but there's a lot of other challenges like each and every one of us has uh, on a daily basis. We can have challenges and things like that or goals perhaps that we may want to set. And uh, you have to be able to manage through that that pain, uh, you know, take that pain and turn it into a superpower, uh, as you had mentioned before. And uh, that is uh, one of the things that we need to do is, is I think that when we get used to uh, being able to go through that process, uh, that's where the resilience comes in. We're used to, we got the mindset, we've developed that mindset uh, to be able to constantly work hard because we know what the outcome is. Even though there's a short-term pain, there's a long-term gain right, mm -hmm. uh, through all of this. And, and that's why I believe it's really important to be able to take a couple of steps back every once in a while and smell the roses and be able to scrutinize and say, you know, what am I doing good or what can I do better? Uh, and like Dr. Lesservoy said that, uh, you know, you be the eagle. Uh, and we have to come to forks in, in our road, in our lives, where we have to make some big decisions. And a lot of times we're held back by fear mm -hmm. that we don't want to take that because uh, we don't know what the outcome is that it, or it may derail what we have right now. But uh, I think that uh, that whole mentality and that whole simple mentality of taking a no and making it an on uh, 
how simple as it sounds, uh, is very difficult, but it's something that we all have within us. It's that flame inside. And if we can continue to constantly ignite that flame time after time after time after time, uh, that's how we walk through life and be able to go out there and not only go through adversity, uh, but have those opportunities to springboard uh, to further success. Yeah. yeah, I mean, when you look back on everything, do you feel like there was purpose to this? Like when you look at it, even from a spiritual perspective or whatever your perception of life is, like, do you, how do you make sense of it now? Do you even, this is a crazy question, do you think you would have made it to the Olympics if this hadn't happened? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, I, listen, I was, uh, my, my parents were hard workers. Uh, and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and I was all about working hard a lot. Uh, but I don't think that, uh, you know, maybe I would have been a really good plumber, right? Or, or something like that, because I was in the trades at the time. I was uh, going through my apprenticeship, and that's what I dreamt to do, is to open up my own construction company. So, you know, I would have maybe been kind of focused in there, but the thing about it is, is the interesting about it, thing about adversity is it puts you in the position to become innovative, whether it's through creating these renaissance type of surgical procedures like Dr. Lesnoy did uh, on me, or if it means reinventing your life. Don't worry about what you don't have, worry about what you do have. So we kind of get into these situations like that where uh, there's there can be opportunities. So going back to your question, if I would have been in the hospital and you would have said, hey Cliff, uh, you're gonna be able to walk again one of these days, I would have probably doubted you. Uh, if, and then if you would have said you're going to be a two-time Olympian, I would have said you've got the wrong kid. <laughs> you maybe need to go to the room next door, right? Uh, because things don't come up like that unless you uh, walk through it step by step by step by micro step. Uh, and like I mentioned before, you know, those opportunity doors uh, can open for you uh, if you're looking for it and you're working very hard and you're learning about yourself. Mm, I really like what you said too about learning from your failures. I was just watching this um, SpaceX documentary about Elon Musk and SpaceX and I love the way that they approach SpaceX because they literally launch rocket after rocket to actually experience the failure and then they study the failure parts to build the next one. And that's yeah. how they've gotten so far. So I think there's just so much value in embracing failure um, instead of shying away from it. And yeah, it sounds like you feel like that had a big part to play in, in your journey. Oh, it's a huge part. And I think it's a huge part of all of us mm -hmm. uh, that you know we don't want to fail. But time after time after time, failure will show us a better way. Uh, if we can't go over the mountain, we go around it. And if we can't go around it, we go through it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, just like my mother, you know, right through the trauma room doors when they told, them, told her not to go in, uh, and she does it, you know? And I think that that's what, how that works is that if we can become experts at managing failures, that's what gets us on top of the podium. All right, everybody, thank you so much for being here and hanging out with us today. A beautiful note to end on, just embracing failure and even reframing the idea of that word and what that even means to fail and knowing that it's always about growth, no matter what. And just a beautiful story of persistence and perseverance and mental fortitude and spiritual fortitude. Oh my goodness. So please do hit us up on Instagram. Let us know what you learned from this and, and what moved inside of you as you as you heard this story. And while I have you here, I'll let you know that I'm leading a virtual workshop this Saturday called Falling in Love with Yourself. It's all based on worthiness and confidence. We'll be doing transformational journaling, EFT tapping, visualization, so many fun things packed into this hour and a half. I can't wait to see you in there. And I've linked to that in the show notes below. And of course, 
course, everything else is on HelenDenham.com. Free offerings, blog posts, all the podcast episodes, and all the good things. So thank you again for being here. And I will talk to you next Wednesday. Bye for now.